Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 2, Episode 1 A quote relevant to Chapter 2 King James, 1566-1625, a counterblast to tobacco. A custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black, stinking fumes thereof, nearest resembling the horrible Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. St. B's to Ennerdale Bridge. Fourteen miles, six hours walking. Best night's sleep I've had for years. Whilst I was floating blissfully on a cloud of forgotten dreams, the world was engaged with endless movement and change. Not just local news, but the rarely considered fact that as I sat in bed, drinking tea, the earth was tumbling through lifeless space at a hundred thousand miles an hour. What a strange and fascinating thing existence is. The BBC weatherman announced the latest inshore shipping forecast for the region. A heavy coastal fog from Great Orms Head in North Wales to the Mull of Galloway on the southern coast of Scotland is expected to clear by mid-morning. If the meteorological shaman had read the scattered bones correctly, Peter and I would be trekking blind that morning. Our coast-to-coast initiation was to be benignly surreal, a silent graveside caress of clammy mist with the murmuring sea out of sight at the foot of the cliff far below. As predicted, the farm was shrouded in a soft blue-gray dampness of the early morning sea mist. Vague shapes appeared, then faded in the eerie swirling silence. Unseen through the mist, a hushed commuter diesel train rumbled to a halt, then, moments later, high revved away. Lo, just above my loft window, acknowledged only by its call, a solitary seagull flew blindly to somewhere hidden from sight. How wonderful it all was, to look out into a misty morning, and sense, through the muffled stillness, the silent mantra, All this was staged, just for you. The plumbing gremlins lay low that morning. Much to my relief, the shower worked perfectly, and I was able to luxuriate in the sensual pleasure of a sizzling high-pressure deluge, which prepared me for whatever the day had to offer. The dining room was spacious and airy, and infused with the dry powdery smell of breakfast cereal, mingled with the familiar flinty taste of a traditional working farmhouse. The military arrangement of cutlery threatened a mighty meal. Oddly, the single occupant of the dining room was sitting facing the entry, with his back to the window that overlooked the garden of flowers and the misty street beyond. After a stiff, ritualistic greeting of strangers in an overnight B&B, we got into conversation. I learned he was a permanent boarder who worked as a contractor in the nuclear industry. I didn't have to tell him I wasn't a fellow Sellafield worker. In this part of the world, a trekker's uniform is explanation enough. I hope the mist rises and the rain keeps off, I said. Not me, he replied. I'm eager for big rains and swollen rivers, so the salmon run. He was a fanatical fly fisherman, whose hobby buoyed his presence in this quiet corner of the northwest of England. Our conversation was interrupted by the familiar sing-song chorus of Good morning! 
Good morning. Good morning, good morning. That echoed around the rafters at each arrival. Two Englishmen, we later learned, were accountants, and an elderly American couple were all dressed for the outdoors. Inadvertent eye contact was answered with a slight nod or conspiratorial smile that suggested they too were uninitiated coast-to-coast hopefuls. I've never been much of a team player, either socially or in my working life, but being in the company of those people filled me with a sense of camaraderie and shared anticipation I'd long ago forgotten. The farmer's wife ran through the hot food choices and took our orders. Most diners selected variations on the cholesterolly loaded full English breakfast. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day for long-distance trekkers, as it supplies the day's energy needs. Colleen's towel-drying process had worked well on my socks, but left my underpants damp, so the backup system was called into play. I fitted the underpants over the back seat headrest in the car. The car's own greenhouse effect would dry them whilst Colleen motored about the countryside. There was one drawback with this process. At first glance, it appeared, she was driving a balaclava-clad bank robber on a daylight heist. When I entered the kitchen to pay the bill, the farmer and his wife were busy clearing things away. Their breakfast arrangement was simple. He cooked the breakfasts whilst she attended to the guests in the dining room. Even though they were in the thick of it, they still found time to chat and joke about the particular assortment of sheep breeds that inhabited Lakeland and the surrounding countryside. They were proud of their champion rounds and showed them as far away as North Wales. Showing at the more prestigious agricultural shows is essential to keep the studs' name in the forefront and their rams, with their prize-winning rosettes, busy servicing the nation's ewes. At the time, the callous Australian practice of musling sheep to prevent maggot infestation was a big issue. As a consequence, several European fashion houses had refused to use Australian wool. The farmer explained that in Europe, as on his farm, there was no need for such callous practices, because sheep don't suffer from fly strike, as they do in the Antipodes. Australia has an estimated 250 million sheep, and that's not defending muesling. That's an awful lot of sheep to manage, particularly in a harsh, drought-prone continent, he observed. Have you heard about the new lanolin-based spray-on raincoats for newly shorn sheep? I inquired. It protects them from the sun and keeps them warm during the critical few days after shearing. No, replied the farmer, giving me a quizzical look. I'd better finish the dishes. Did the shower work okay? Asked the landlady, changing the subject. I had a chilly welcome last night, but this morning everything was fine, I replied. The farmer specialised in breeding succulent Dutch textile rams, even though they are the most unpleasantly aggressive-looking sheep imaginable. The rams, or tops, look like woolly tree trunks, with wide, flat heads that are carried at such an angle as to give the impression of having caught the whiff of something very nasty. Indeed, their angry eyes are set so far apart that they look to have been tacked on to the side of their heads as an afterthought. The creatures wear a permanent expression of pugnacity, which suggests that they are more likely to bite than butt, and only too willing to try. On reflection, 
there was little wonder that the gruesome textile realms appeared smitten with so disdainful a countenance. Bearing in mind the scintillating grasses they ate, it would be little surprise to learn that the sheep suffered from the chronic condition known as irritable bowel syndrome. On the beach, the wash from the distant breakers guided us through the mist towards the sea. A disquieting whisper of stifled voices floated through the opaque murkiness, yielding reflections of the western front. Snatches of words drifted close and low over no man's land, whispered from the enemy trenches, a mere grenade toss away. A stooped figure appeared in the gloom, then quickly vanished from sight. He was bent double, like a medic, shouldering a fallen comrade, following a gas attack. After Wainwright's trailblazing the coast-to-coast path, he bequeathed a wet-toe ceremony to those following in his footsteps. First-timers dipped the toe-cap of their boot into the Irish Sea at the beginning of the trek, and into the North Sea at its end. For me, the act was a symbolic acknowledgement of Wainwright's stalwart effort in blazing the trail rather than a personal baptism. In truth, Peter and I didn't walk to the edge of the green-grey expanse of the Irish Sea, but stood in a puddle left behind by the receding tide. After so much planning and talk, we were keen to get into action. As we prepared to set off, the hunchback mirage we'd glimpsed earlier approached through the mist. After decoding a G'day! and a Kiara or two, we discovered the phantom was, in fact, a middle-aged, nonconformist Kiwi of average build and height. The New Zealander flaunted his individuality beneath a battered tweed cap perched jauntily over a broad face, framed by Teddy Boy sideburns that ended at his jawline. Across his top lip, he sported a pencil-lined moustache of a cut favoured by spivs in the 1950s. I've tramped the four points of the compass, he declared assuredly. When this one's crossed off, I'm off to France to show the frogs how it's done. He remained bent double as he spoke, weighed down by his enormous backpack that was bulky enough to house the IOUs of half New Zealand's national debt. His staggered motion gave the impression that forward movement was necessary to avoid being bowled over by the chaotic momentum of his burden. If he fell flat on his face, I'm sure he'd remain pinned to the ground until rescue arrived, I thought. Like so many of his countrymen, who pursue an eccentric fascination for extremely hazardous sport, he gave the impression of being ready to wrestle Mother Nature into submission. Having started his tussle with the landscape, nothing would be allowed to divert him from his quest. The Kiwi trailblazer totted off up the slope and silently faded into the grey fog. Whilst posing for our commemorative photograph, more shadowy figures emerged through the mist. They appeared slowly, like vaporous zombies, on a prearranged set from a silent black-and-white film. Perhaps their heavy tread reflected their apprehension at what lay ahead, and misgivings about their ability to rise to the challenge. And so our journey began. After much preparation, we simply kissed Colleen farewell, and climbed the deeply eroded gully towards... St. Bee's head. When I looked back from the cliff top, Colleen and all else had vanished from sight into a swirling bank of morning mist. We were on our way and on our own.